Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with longtime NHL and Major League Baseball play-by-play man Gary Thorne. Alright, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone. And today on the show, we've got another one of my favorite voices in the game. Longtime voice of the Baltimore Orioles. He's one of the most versatile guys in the business. He's football, hockey, Little League, World Series, WWE. This guy's even done professional <laughs> bowling. It's amazing. There's nothing he hasn't done. Ladies and gentlemen, Gary Thorne. Gary! Thanks for coming on the program. My pleasure. Bowling. I read that. Hey. Is there any? Is there anything you wanted to broadcast? Because I got. <laughs> that here's I the thing. I've, yeah, I've got to do my research. Even with Gary Thorne, a buddy of mine that I've known for a long time, I got to do my research and really get into it. But <laughs> is there anything you wanted to broadcast that you haven't been able to do? And and if so, what would be the toughest call? Of a sport that you haven't Ooh. done yet, that I haven't done yet. Well, yeah. I think the answer is it's more just like the player, Brett. It would be, what do you, uh, what are you least good at? What are you least knowledgeable of? Uh, and probably that would end up being soccer. Uh, I've never played soccer. Uh, I'm not a soccer fan. I'm not anti-soccer, but I've just I've just never played it or followed teams or anything. So I think that would be uh, that might be a tough one to get used to. Although thinking about the way the game is played and the pace of it, which is reasonable for an announcer, uh, probably wouldn't take too long, actually, to get into it. And the way uh, soccer's growing, maybe I ought to look at it. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be good at it. Okay, so you're born in Bangor, Maine. You go yep. to, uh, you end up getting your law degree from Georgetown. Uh, next thing you know, and correct me if I, if I say this wrong. It, but it's Penobscot yep. County. You're the assistant district attorney. So you go from the assistant district attorney in this obscure county to the <laughs> career you've had. Yeah. Uh, I want to know I all mean, about that. To, yeah. Well, I went to the University of Maine School of Law first and got my JD degree. And then I because in undergraduate school, I was on a uh, Army ROTC scholarship. I owed them four years. So I ended up getting a t- deferment from going on active duty and went to, went to, uh, went into the Army, went into, uh, went to law school rather, and then went into the Army in the JAG Corps, uh, as a captain and got stationed in Washington doing appellate work, uh, for the Army. And that was when I went to Georgetown and got my uh, doctor of law. Uh, from Georgetown, and stayed there for four years practicing law, then went back home to Maine. Uh, I said I was going to go into a private firm with a very good friend who I had worked with in the DA's office, and uh, we went into practice, and then we joined another firm and got a little bigger, and uh, that's where I intended to be and really intended to stay and, in fact, was looking uh, really to move into a judicial position later in my career. Uh, I was on the, uh, the labor board for the state of Maine, and I was ready to be appointed uh, to a magistrate's job for workers' compensation by the governor. And then uh, that's when everything that's when everything went 180 degrees. Uh, I'd continued to do sports all those years. 
uh, high school, college. I did Maine hockey, which didn't come into existence until the late 70s, and I was back from the Army by then. Uh, so I'd continue to do sports, and I, we, I was an investor in a AAA baseball team we had in Maine, and I took a summer off from the law firm in order to set up the radio TV network, and I did the games myself, really for the fun of it. And then I went back to the law firm, and then lo and behold, that fall, uh, a call came from Peter Gammons, the writer at that time for The Globe, uh, who summered in Maine. He'd written a nice column about me. The Mets had read it. The Mets called him. The Mets called me. I met with the Mets. There were 300 or whatever people after the job, and then it was 100, and then it was 10, and then it was three, and then it was me. So that's how it happened. Uh, so you go to the Mets. I mean, in, you've been, you've been uh, since since really the '80s. You've been involved of, of some of the biggest sports moment in the history. Um, but let's yeah. let's start. Since you bring me to the Mets, let's start with the with the Mets. It's your first big league job. You're you're with the Mets starting in '85. You have a four year tenure there. And just take right. me. Kind of take me through those years with the Mets. Obviously, we had the big world, you know, the world championship in 86. Uh, you had the Buckner mm. call. I mean, a lot of a lot of characters on those Mets team. Just take me through <laughs> those years a little bit. Well, the, uh, the Mets years were just tremendous. Uh, number one, I got to work with great people in the business. Bob Murphy was my partner. I did radio with Murph. Bob was one of the original three along with Lindsey Nelson and Ralph Kiner, to announce Met Baseball. Lindsey had passed away when I, when I was there, but Ralph was still working. So I got to know Ralph Kiner really well. Bob became a dear friend, um, and, and I loved working with him. And well, it was a very good baseball team. I mean, uh, and a very good front office headed up by Frank Cashin, who was as good a person to work for as you'd ever find. Uh, so the relationships were just great. It was, it, I know it's trite somewhat, but it really was a family feeling in working with the Mets from the, from the very top, Nelson Doubleday as an owner, who was always at the ballpark, gregarious, uh, kind, you know, just really good to you, and all the way down through the organization. And it was a great place to work. And then you put a really good team on the field in front of that. In 85, you know, Doc Gooden is coming into his own. Uh, you got a ball club that's got the that's got the Mookie Wilsons and looking looking to build on that with uh, Sid Fernandez and needing a couple more pitchers. And then in '86 they got the couple more pitchers. They had Daryl Strawberry, they had Mookie Wilson, they got Kevin McReynolds for a great outfield. Uh, Rafael Santana, shortstop, who is as solid as as you can ask for anybody to play there. Ray Knight became a World Series. MVP at third. You had Wally Backman playing to second base. You got Keith Hernandez, a big acquisition over at first. And then the other big acquisition that sort of put him over the top would be Gary Carter. Gary comes, does the catching. He and Keith are, are natural leaders of the ball club. And uh, they went on a tear. I mean, they loved to play and they loved to win and they hated to lose. And uh, you're right. They were characters. They were, <laughs> they were individuals. Uh, they came together as a team, and uh, it was a great season, uh, especially against the uh, Cardinals. The Cardinals were the team the Mets were most focused on, and the Cardinals on the Mets. So when those teams played one another, I mean, it was like a New Year's Eve celebration, no matter where the game was played, in St. Louis or New York, that it was wild. And they didn't like one another at all. And you know what that's like. That happens in sports where there's great competition and great players and great rivalries. 
And that's what went on uh, that year. And 86, the playoffs were stupendous. I mean, the National League Championship Series against Houston, uh, I've always felt is one of the best ever played. Uh, ended up going into extra innings and all kinds of configurations of players where they're not supposed to be. And Davey Johnson running Roger McDowell and Jesse Orozco from the mound to right field, from right field back to the mound, depending on who was hitting. I mean, it was that kind of a series, and it was great, uh, really well played. And the Mets came out of that, and then you go to the World Series against the Red Sox. And, I mean, that has become one of the historic series, I think, in World Series history, and the highlighted by the Mookie Wilson ground ball between Buckner's legs, which over time, a lot of baseball fans think that was it, that that was the end of the series, and the Mets won. It, of course, was game six, and there was another right. game to be played, and the Mets fell behind in that game and had to come from behind to win. So it was just, it was just a great year. Yeah, isn't it amazing, though, through, as time goes on? And, and like you said, you've had to remind people uh, after, as the years pass that, hey, when, when Buckner missed that ground ball, the series wasn't over. I remember when I was a kid and the Angels were playing the boss or, or the Red Sox it might have been that same year. It might have been 86 when, when my dad played for the Angels and Donnie Moore gave up that home run to Henderson yep. uh, with two strikes and everybody thought that was it. No, that, was, <laughs> that wasn't the end. That, that tied them in the series. And then they went out and lost the next game. Yeah, it would have been over yeah. then if he wouldn't have made that pitch, but he did. But it's interesting. Another thing I wanted to touch on that, that I think is so interesting, you talk about that Mets team and the ownership and, and how cool of a, uh, a, I guess, atmosphere that was set up yep. by the owner being hands-on, being on the ground. As a kid, I remember uh, the early 70s with the Phillies. And, uh, you know, I'm just a little punk, snotty-nosed kid running around, but I'm watching dad growing up in Philly. And a, a guy by the name of Ruley Carpenter, uh, owned yep. the Philadelphia Phillies, and he was one of those owners wanted to win, was hands on, would come into the clubhouse. the The players not only respected him but liked him, liked having him around, and they created that atmosphere that made you really, as a player, felt like, man, there's the big guy, and he's got our back, and and let's go out and win this thing. I can't tell you yeah. over the years uh, how how good of a feeling that is for the players to know that. And we don't have it so much. It's gone a lot, a lot of corporate and you don't have that kind of mom and pop feeling that, that, Hey, let's just all hands on deck and let's go. So I thought that was an interesting thing you brought up and, and something I know a lot of players would love to see more of. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's great to hear that from a player. I think Brett, the way I I always looked at that and I would think maybe uh, you can tell me from a player's perspective too, instead of being on the, if you will, on the outside of an organization and working for it and looking in. You're on the inside of the organization altogether looking out. And so everybody's on the same wavelength. Everybody's on the same page. You've got an end goal that everybody is focused on and wants to get to. And, boy, if you can get that kind of an organization, I agree with you. I mean, I think it just makes a world of difference in what the ending performance looks like. Yeah, and I think, you know, over the years, probably the most famous is a situation when it comes to hands-on ownership. You see a few now in the NBA with Cuban, uh, you know, over there in Dallas with Jerry Jones uh, in the NFL. 
But probably yep. the most famous hands-on was uh, was Mr. Steinbrenner. And, yep. you know, players would always ask me and, and fans would say, hey, you ever going to play for the Yankees? Oh, one day maybe I will. And, and they said, oh, what would it be like playing for George? And once again, coming from the player's perspective, it's like, man, I would love that because this guy yeah. might come out and blast you. But yep. when he comes to that clubhouse next day and looks you in the eyes, the only thing he wants to do is win. And, and I've been places where winning wasn't the first thing. And, and it's a lonely place, even though you got 25 guys uh, in that clubhouse who you go go to battle with every night. Man, when everybody's on board from the front office uh, or, or I'm sorry, from the owner down, it, it's such yep. a cohesive unit and, and it's so powerful. And I think the organizations that can do that really, really gain a little bit of an edge. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, that I really agree. doesn't get talked yep. about that much. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And to hear that from a player's perspective, I think is really uh, important. It'll be interesting to see, Brett, I think, with all the players now becoming involved in ownership roles in different leagues. Interesting to see how they how they respond to the situation of being uh, up the ladder, so-called, and whether or not these former players, who were obviously big names and made a lot of money, whether they try and create that kind of relationship in the clubs that they're now part of the ownership of. I don't know. I don't know, but I'll be interested to see what they do with that. Well, and I, I think, like anything else, Gary, I think it has to do with the individual. And and yeah. what type of player were they? Well, obviously, if they're in an ownership role, they probably were a pretty successful player. Yeah. But, yeah. but you know, what do they bring to the table? What What is their – what's their character? What's the – you know, what were they like as players? So I think it, it's definitely an individual thing, but I think it's it's definitely something looking in the future would be a real cool thing if 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 we, we saw more of those family-owned – you know, hey, I'm a, I'm here yep. with you. I, I remember, you know, and and she definitely had her detractors. <laughs> but I played for Mark <laughs> Shot in Cincinnati, and man, that was yep. a circus. And she was cheap as all get out. I mean, I remember, uh, you know, we'd get a dozen bats, and and man, this is this is early in my career. But I remember going to Bernie Stowe, the clubhouse guy for the Cincinnati Reds, forever. And say, yeah. Bernie, I need another. I need a dozen bats. He go, well, you know, Marge likes you to turn in your crack bats. I said, well, I gave that kid over the dugout one of my crack bats. You know, I signed one for something else. We, you, you'd eventually get it done. But you talk about nickel and dime. But I'll tell you, at the trade at the trading deadline, if we needed a player to get to the next level, you know, that organization felt. Yeah. Man, it seemed like Marge would step up and go, whatever we need to do to win. And and with all the distractions that she brought, those players down there knew that at the end of the day, all she wants to do is win. So so sometimes you put up with the other things, you know. You know, it, it was a real, yeah. believe me, it was a real inter- interesting <laughs> time. We could I could talk about this for days. All right, to 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 change the subject a little bit. All right, from eighty seven to ninety three. Uh, you go to the New Jersey uh, Devils. Talk yeah, to me about that. that. You, t- you, you told me you did some hockey uh, at at the college level at Maine. Yep. But uh, was this your was this your first NHL? And and let's yeah. talk about that new Je- those New Jersey Devil years. Yeah, this was my uh, that was the first time in, and it came about interestingly because the. Uh, 
new GM in New Jersey was Lou Lamarillo. Lou Lamarillo had been the head coach and athletic director at Providence College. Maine played in the same league as Providence College. And I must have interviewed Lou every time we went to Providence to play a game for him between periods interviews. So I'm in, uh, I'm in New York. I'm doing the Mets. Um, what, in 87, I'm still there with the Mets. And I get a call from Lou. Uh, he says, uh, I'm taking over as GM of the Devils, and uh, you want to do hockey? And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> and uh, so went with the team. They were uh, a club that had not gone to the playoffs, uh, a relatively new team in the league. They had a real good fan base over at the Brendan Byrne Arena in New Jersey over by uh, Giant Stadium. And uh, Lou, is, Lou is a driver. I mean, Lou is as focused on winning as every, anyone you'll ever meet in your life. And he intended to put a team together that could win some games. And uh, I, I, was, I was delighted at the opportunity, obviously, to go. And so I did the, I did the Devils for those years. And they did get to the playoffs uh, one of those, a couple of those seasons, and they went on to win the Cup at a time when I, at that point, I was doing games on ESPN in the playoffs. But uh, I did the games, the playoff series where the Devils won. And it was great. They had a wonderful fan base. We had, we had a great time over there, real good people hardworking. I mean, it was a driven organization, and that was because of Lou at the top. Um, but to be involved in the National Hockey League like that, I mean, here again, it's another fortuitous situation, much the same way that happened in baseball. It happened in hockey. I wasn't looking for the Mets job. Certainly never thought I'd get it, even when I started applying. And I certainly wasn't thinking about doing hockey, because if Lou had never called, I never would have. I never would have gone out and looked for a hockey team to broadcast for. So again, a couple of circumstances, right place, right time, and right experience, and uh, got the job and had a great time doing doing the games with Peter McNabb, a former Devils player. He and I did the color those years for the team. I'll tell you, is it a, uh, because it's a pretty unique situation for you. Okay, you're doing Mets games, and that's a, you know, it's a six-month gig. If you don't include spring yep. training, you don't include the postseason. Uh, so then you take the devil's job. You really don't have an off season, but no explain to me someone that's never been in that position doing that. It, is it okay? Because you know what? Baseball's over. It's kind of a reprieve to go to hockey and it's kind of refreshing for me now. So I really don't need an off season. This is it kind of like in high school when you're done with baseball season. Now it's football season. You're done with football. Now we go play hoops, you know, so you never kind of get burned out. So I don't know. Explain that to me a little bit. I don't know either. I wish I had a good answer. I wish I had a good answer to that because I did. By the way, I, I just back, thought of that off the top of my head. See how good I am. Well, <laughs> you are. But I'm looking back on that. I'm wondering what the hell am I doing? What was I thinking? Um, because I think it sounds cool. Are, as you know, these are long seasons. Oh, uh, man. And the work, the preparation work that goes into every game that you do, whether it's hockey, baseball, or anything else, it's it's a 24-7 job. It doesn't end. Um, and to do that year-round, I don't know. I guess the answer is that I simply loved broadcasting, number one. I've, always, I've done it since I was a junior in high school. I love broadcasting, and I love sports. So the opportunity to put the two together, I think, just kept the adrenaline flowing and, and kept me moving doing both of those sports. But it was not easy. 
Um, and uh, the reason I, I probably would have been with the Mets for 50 years if I hadn't had to make a choice. And Frank Cashin and I had the conversation, and he was completely in, in his right realm to do it. At one point, he said, Gary, you got to decide here. We need you. Because what was happening was I was missing some Met games in order to get to the Devils to do some of their games. And Frank said, we want somebody who's going to be here all the time, and we need you to make a commitment to stay here. And I didn't want to do it. Um, I said, Frank, I, you know, I love you. I love the team and the organization. You've been great to me, but I do not want to give up hockey, which in hindsight was a good decision for me because I ended up going with ESPN when they got hockey, which allowed me to do the Stanley Cup playoffs for all those years. So it, it worked out, but it was one of the toughest decisions I've ever made in the business because I know that if I had made the decision to stay with the Mets, that's where I would still be broadcasting baseball. But I didn't. Uh, I wanted to do both if I could, and it ended up that I could. And so that's the road I took. So 89, ABC Thursday Night Baseball. You kick that off. And that that just leads me into uh, just, you know, real interesting postseason, to say the least. Uh, but that 89 World Series, and you're there, uh, yep. the Bay Bridge Series. I was at USC. Yep. Man, what a time to be there. Uh, you know, I remember it happened. Everybody's kind of stunned. And. Who knows what's going to happen next? Not to really compare it to 9-11, but it was that, okay, it's the World Series. Are we going to keep playing? When Are we going to take a day off? Are we going to take a week off? Uh, what was that like yeah. being on the ground? Well, uh, it obviously was very tough. I mean, the time of the earthquake, uh, Joe Morgan and I and Willie Mays were standing on the field together outside of the uh, visiting uh, uh, the home dugout. We were going to go on the air next. The, they'd thrown it to commercial. L. Michaels in the booth was just coming back on, and we, Joe and I were going to interview Willie. And uh, just as they were getting ready to throw it down to us, that's when you heard this tremendous rumble, the train. Uh, I had never been through an earthquake before, so I had no idea. And then the earth was shaking under your feet, and I looked up if people who have been uh, at the old stadium out of Candlestick, it had huge cement overhangs that went all the way around the top. And those things were waving like they were made out of paper. They literally were waving cement concrete that how many tons of that, I don't know. And realized, you know, oh my God, this is a real earthquake. Then it ends and the fans start chanting, play ball because we still don't know how serious this is. And I'm now I'm reporting from the field. I get Faye Vincent. I get the, uh, the fire chief of uh, San Francisco who's there at the ballpark, talk to a couple of players, et cetera, et cetera. And then the information starts coming in that the Bay Bridge had had a, you know, a tragic tragedy occur and that downtown San Francisco buildings had collapsed and windows had fallen out of five, six, seven, eight story buildings just, fallen flat out on the road. And then we began to realize, oh my God, you know, this, this is serious. And then made the decisions, you know, what, what we got to do. We got off the air, the news took over and uh, Joe Morgan and I, it was dark by this time, Joe and I 
had a driver who was taking us back to downtown. And if the driver hadn't lived there, I don't think we ever would have gotten there because there was no way in God's earth you knew where you were. It was complete and total blackness everywhere. And went back to the hotel. And then you just waited. And uh, ABC wanted somebody to stay in San Francisco because some of the people went home because it wasn't going to be a game for at least a couple of days. So I stayed in San Francisco for the whole thing. And I did the news when Faye Vincent held the press conferences by candlelight uh, at the St. Francis Hotel. I went over to those and covered those and just waited um, until the decision was made that we, they could get back out, that it was safe, that the people were not going to be put out uh, by having the games being played. But at that point, uh, Brad, as you, you surely will un, you know, understand as a player too, I mean, the the emphasis was gone. The focus was gone. It's like, let's get this over with and get out of here. Because this is a disaster the city needs to deal with. And it was almost like, you know, we're just in the way. But games were played and uh, got it completed. But it was, you know, you just hope nothing like that ever happens again. Yeah, because I, I remember, you know, when it happened and, you know, Living in in Southern Cal, uh, it, not that you ever become used to it, but I had been, you know, I, I had been in a few, uh, you know, like I had mentioned, I was at the at USC at the time, uh, nineteen eighty nine, and and I remember getting uh, summoned out of my freshman dormitory. You know, it's probably seven yeah. or eight stories, and and we're shaking in the middle of the night, and go to you know we go out everybody's everybody's in their underwear and whatever they're yeah. sleeping in and we're just all all right and then we go back in and you know some stuff would shake something might fall off the shelf i had a few in uh down in orange county where i got shook out of the bed but after a while it's like yeah it'll stop it'll stop but man yeah you guys yeah. went through i've i've never been in one of that magnitude so that that had to be something yeah that was scary that was really scary and and you just you know, it just it seemed as though it just kept getting worse because as you learn more about what had happened in the earthquake and what had been destroyed and where the damages were, uh, you just realize the extent of what was going on with this thing. So it was it was unbelievable. I mean, I I'll never. Yeah, I remember it. the double you know, the double decker bridge. The double decker bridge collapsed. I remember yeah. that. I remember yeah, that. yeah. And people were killed. So it was it was not pretty. I found this real interesting, and uh, I believe it was 96 through 2003. You did Armed Forces Radio, and you mentioned earlier about your, your service uh, earlier in your, in your life. How, how was that? Was there a difference, or, or was, that, was that business as usual to, to be uh, kind of broadcasting to the servicemen and women around the world? Yeah, well, this was interesting because what that was part of was at that time, Major League Baseball did what was called a world feed uh, of the playoffs, the World Series and the playoffs. And I was fortunate enough to have been asked by Major League Baseball uh, to do the play-by-play for those games. So we covered either the American League or National League Series, and then we covered the World Series. And it was carried by the Armed Forces Network. So that's how we ended up doing Armed Forces Radio and uh, Armed Forces TV. And we had, uh, we used to take 
messages from uh, anybody that wanted to could uh, ship to us emails, and we would read them on the air, recognize people. We had one bar in some place in China that joined us every year and, and got baseball fans together. Some, uh, uh, some Pat who was living over there in China, expat. So, I mean, it was really wonderful. It was wonderful to hear from the people we got from ships and combat units and just all kinds of folks all over the world and to be able to hear from them during the course of the game and say hi to them while the game was going on uh, was something we really enjoyed. And I, I love that. I just thought, I thought that was a treat and it was great that the, that the players, that the uh, armed service members got a chance to actually hear the game. So, I mean, I loved it. I just thought it was great. Skip around a little bit. O2 winter Olympics, it's your first Olympics. You have to call the hockey. Uh, that's not something everybody gets to do in their career. Say, hey, I was the commentator in the Olympics. Talk about salt that yeah. the, those Salt Lake games. Yeah, the Salt Lake games. Uh, I mean, obviously, that is great fun. Uh, you're seeing the best of the world coming out to play against one another in those games and the best players. And I, uh, I just loved it. I mean, we had a tremendous crew to work with. Uh, John Davidson, Bill Clement, uh, Jim Lampley, and others who were helping us on the hockey side of it. And when you see the, the, the amount of talent that there is around the world on these teams, uh, it's pretty amazing. Uh, I didn't realize, even though I'd covered hockey and knew a lot of the players from overseas who played in the NHL, didn't realize just how much talent there was in so many of these of these nations and the kind of quality that was played there. And you got to see it in the Olympics. And of course, just, just being around the Olympics with all the excitement of the, the fans that come and cheer for their team and teams have team houses. They're like fraternities. And it was, uh, it, it was just a great, great joy. Uh, I was delighted to have the chance to do that. I got to do three Olympics overall, um, Went to Japan for the first one and, and did speed skating. Went to Sydney, Australia for the other one and did uh, canoeing and kayaking and then had the Salt Lake Games for the hockey. So uh, very fortunate. I mean, one, to get to travel to those places and be involved in an event like that is that's special. That's really special. Yeah, and they got the village. See, I, I got to play in the uh, – I think I got to play in the Pan Am game. So it wasn't a – you know, it wasn't an Olympic year in uh, the league. Yep. It was, I believe it was 89 for me. It was right after that, that big, uh, th- when Team USA baseball, they had won the year before yep. with, uh, I forget who was on that team. I think it was Tino Martinez and uh, Jack McDowell. I, I forget who it was. Uh, uh, Abbott left-handed pitcher. And they yeah, had yeah. won that, you know, it was a big deal back in 88 when they won. Then in 89, uh, we, pl- we played, I was on the USA team, but it wasn't anything like that. <laughs> we didn't get to walk around the yeah. village and hang out, but, uh, yeah, that had to be a pretty cool thing. Uh, 2011, yeah, 2011, uh, to 2016, you get to be the master's ceremonies in Cooperstown. Another pretty mm-hmm. awesome experience. And, and Gary, I'll tell you, I've only, I've been to I've been to Cooperstown a couple times, and a few years ago I, I went for a buddy of mine got inducted, Trevor Hoffman, 
And I actually went back for the ceremonies, never had done it before. And I figured, you know, I'm going to first I'm going to go support my buddy, but I've never seen it. It, It's worth the trip. I ended up going back there, uh, taking my oldest son with me, Jacob. And uh, I was blown. I was blown away. And because watching on TV, you know, people out there listening to the Boone podcast, you think you're seeing, you know, they, they pan the crowd and you, and you see the friends and the families and the ex-teammates in the crowd. But unless you're there, you have no idea the, the magnitude of what's going on. I, I mean, I, it's what I could imagine Woodstock look like. I remember being down kind of <laughs> kind of in the family section. You know, and we're kind of roped off in the front and you look back and the people go, it seems like for miles, it was one of the coolest uh, experiences I've ever had. You got to do it. Uh, What are your feelings about it? Man, I I was still blown away. Not too many things blow me away. It's hard to put into words. Um, You go there and you spend the entire weekend. Um, You really get to know the hall of famers who come back, they have a, there's a Friday night reception that, that is held by Jane Forbes Clark, who's in charge of the hall. And it's a, it's a just, you know, you go and you have a buffet and there's music and dancing, but mostly you get to talk to players. You get, you get to just get them in a very relaxed situation. And then you eat there. Everybody stays that's involved, all the players. And, and I was fortunate enough to be able to stay in the, same hotel that they're in. So everybody's there at the same hotel. Everybody's there and we, and we eat uh, together and uh, have drinks together. And Friday night, the guys have a special night just for themselves downstairs. Joe Morgan uh, would take me down with him and uh, they just have a hell of a time together. Uh, and then you get the induction ceremony on, on Sunday and, you know, to number one, as a fan, just to see these people, uh, to see Willie Mays and Yogi Berra and, and Sandy and Koufax, and I mean, to see all of these Hall of Fame people, uh, that in and of itself is enough for me as a fan, just that I would have come in contact with them somewhere. But then to share weekends with them and to get to introduce them on stage, uh, I mean, how lucky is that? I mean, how, how could it get any better than that? From the perspective of a, of a broadcaster and a fan, the only thing better is being a player who's made it there. Um, but it's, uh, I look back on those times and those, those hours that were spent with those guys, and I, I am just so thankful to have had that opportunity and, and get to know some of these people really well. I mean, we've, there were some relationships established and we, and we stayed close and, uh, have contact with one another and, uh, I mean, that's just a, that's a great joy for me. 2007 to 2020, uh, you've been the voice of the Orioles. And it brings me to a point interesting to me. I want to know. Been a play-by-play guy for so many years, so many different platforms. When you do it day-to-day, so for the Orioles, you did it 14 years, and it's day-to-day with that same team. But be, mm-hmm. what is the difference between that and the national stage? So say a Thursday night baseball, Sunday night baseball, where you're still calling the play-by-play, different teams. Uh, tell me the nuances, the differences between 
being with that team on a daily basis versus the national stage? Well, in all honesty, doing the, uh, the, the single team is much easier. The problem with the national games is you're flying in, flying out. You, and as you know, baseball is a season. It's day after day after day after day. And the stories that build up and what's happening, what's going on at any given point depends on what happened yesterday and what's going to happen tomorrow. When you're following a team, you get to know those things. You're part of it. You see it. Uh, you don't. All the stories about the club you're covering can be covered pretty easily because you're standing there watching it. And the team that's coming in, you talk to other writers and broadcasters and managers and coaches and players, and you can get to learn about them, and you got a three- or four-game series. So by the time that's done, you've got a pretty good handle on that team uh, for the remainder of the year. But when you're doing those national games, it, it's much harder because you have not seen these, probably have not seen these teams before as far as broadcasting is concerned, and you probably won't see them again. And if you do, it's only going to be two or three times and it'll be with tremendous amounts of time in between. So it's harder to bring yourself up to speed on what's going on with those teams when you're doing a national broadcast, much harder than doing the individual club. And uh, obviously when you're doing the individual club, I'm not what's in the business called a homer. I don't, you know, it's not we and they. I've never done that because I never have had an RBI or thrown a baseball across the plate. So it isn't we. Uh, it's the team that I'm covering. And I, I, I try and be fair, honest. But there's a slant towards the team I'm covering because I want them to win. It's a hell of a lot more fun to be broadcasting for a winning team than it is for a losing one. Same way it is when you're playing. Uh, but I, I really, I prefer doing a team in all honesty. I think it's just I think it's more fun to be involved in the day-to-day, -day, as tough as that grind can get, as you know, in July and August. Uh, it's still more fun doing that because it's a story that, that's built from day one all the way through the season, and you get to live it and enjoy it and, and see the ups and downs of it. But th that's the major difference between a national and a, and a local broadcast. Little League World Series. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're used to covering it and man, the contract it's, it's such a difference. You're used to covering the best players in the world at the top of their game. And all of a sudden for a, for a week uh, in Williamsport, you get to cover 12 year old kids just kind of living their dreams. They're, they're more interested in, you know, if they get to go to Dairy Queen after the game, but but there's kind of an innocence to it that's that's really cool. Uh, most of us uh, never get to make it to Williamsport. I remember as a kid, we got, I got to the state finals and we lost. I mean, especially when we were when I was growing up, man, you get to the yeah, Little League World yeah. Series. That that's something. But uh, tell me a little bit about you know what we don't see on the on the broadcast, the the behind the scenes stuff. What is Williamsport like? I know uh, Aaron got to work the Little League World Series, and uh, you know he actually enjoyed doing it. Did you enjoy it? And and is there I loved something it. to? Oh, I loved it. Just doing those twelve year old kids, and and like I said. Yeah. The innocence that behind it all. Yeah, absolutely. There's an innocence and a purity to the game for all of us. If we go back to the days that we played in whatever league it was while we were growing up at that age, you know, eight to 12 or something. Uh, the behind the scenes of it is the community's interaction with Little League Baseball and the players that come. 
There are host families for every team that help the team stay there at Williamsport and some great uh, dormitory facilities where they have games and ping pong tables and lots of ice cream and they eat well and uh, all of that goes on. But they have hosts who are from the city themselves who uh, take care of the team, take them out to places, come by with them, uh, set up barbecues and cookouts and all that kind of stuff. That goes on all the time that the tournament's going on. The players get to interact with one another because when they go back to the dormitory, here are all these kids from all over the world playing Little League Baseball who have, a, have an opportunity to, to, to enjoy one another and to get to know one another. And that part of it is, is as, as, as important, I think, as are the games themselves. It was uh, – and doing the games, I had no problem covering the game. They are what they are. The kids are the kids. They're doing what they love. And my only job is just who are they, where are they from, a little history, what's their favorite food, and watch them play, make great plays, make mistakes, whatever it is, get excited. I mean, it wasn't a – you didn't have to add much to the picture on television to understand what was going on and how enjoyable – it was for them, and it was equally enjoyable, I think. It was for me, and I think for all of us who worked there to be able to cover it. And the extraordinary part of it always for me was the, the caliber of players was really unbelievable. I mean, some of these kids played like they were in high school, uh, and not because of their size, but because of their skills. And to see that going on, uh, at the little league level was uh, was it was really fun, and to watch these kids compete, and then as soon as the game's over, where's the ice cream? And there's a beauty in that, and uh, it made it really enjoyable. <laughs> and somebody's always gonna cry. And I, what I what I love the most about it is those strike zones. And I love when they when they get on a roll, was you get the one? right. Oh, you get the you get the right guy behind the dish, and it's like it's Eric Gray yeah. in the in the World Series with the Marlins. Yeah, well, the umpires were that was, uh, it was a tough job. The umpires for the Little League World Series are told, you know, we can't keep these games going on forever and ever. So if it's close, it's got to be a strike. We want the kids coming up swinging. We want them to to play the game and not be sitting there waiting for ball four time after time after time. So that's why you've got some of these huge strike zones. Uh, but you also got kids who are swinging at stuff that, <laughs> that they weren't going to reach with a 10-foot pole sometimes. But, you know, there was no complaints from the kids, really. They, they understood what was going on. They were playing. It was the fun of it. Yeah, they wanted to win, and it, and it was going to be great if they could come away with a Little League World Championship. But the, the best part was that they were there and that they were having a chance to be involved in everything that went on in Williamsport during that uh, two-week period. And that's a great thing. It's a great program, and it's really well run, and it's run to be supportive of the kids. That's the number one concern. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll tell you, and, and getting back to your hockey, hockey a little bit, I love hockey. I love hockey players. I love the, I don't know, I just love the mentality of a hockey player. A few I've met over the years. Uh, I think the humblest of all athletes, to be honest, with all the, the different leagues that I've interacted with. Unless Gary Thorne's calling the game, tough for me to watch. 
But if you got two <laughs> seats for me at the game, I'm going. It's just one of those things. It's like you with soccer. Like, I don't understand it. But but I grew up as a kid skating on the lakes, you know, plowing off the snow, playing hockey. I just don't like what. But I hear I, I hear your voice. I'm like, that's scary. I got to listen for something. You just Thank resonate you. <laughs> me, with, me with hockey. I tell other people, they're like, no, baseball announcer. I said, you got to listen to this hockey. It's it's my favorite to listen to. My point being, God love you. <laughs> how did Gary Thorne, my the voice I hear in my hockey dreams, how does he get involved with the WWE and of all things the PBA? You're calling Weber's, I don't know, three hundreds game. Tell tell me about those two a little bit. Well, the bowling thing ended up. Uh, here's another accident. I'm working for ESPN. I'm not doing bowling. Uh, they've got the rights, and the guy that was covering left. Uh, and honestly, I don't even remember what happened, but it was midway through the through the bowling season, and he wasn't going to be able to do them anymore. And so one of my good buddies there asked me, uh, are you willing to uh, come on and do some bowling with us? To finish <laughs> up the season? And, and I was like, well... Yeah, I can uh, I can do that. And I'll tell you the irony of it was when I was in Maine going to college, the public television station uh, at the university where I went, University of Maine, actually did a couple seasons of winter tournaments in bowling. And I did them. <laughs> uh, why, I don't know, but I did them. Uh, and so I'd actually done some bowling before. And so when they said, do this, uh, I said, we just go out to Vegas and, you know, we're going to have the tournament and they'll be there. And I said, all right, let's go ahead and do it then. And so I did. And then it ended up being this unbelievable outcome of the, when he won and had that tremendous uh, moment <laughs> where, where he was <laughs> hollering at somebody in the crowd, a woman who had been heckling him throughout the game. Uh, it just ended up, you know, it, it ended up being that kind of a moment. I can't tell you how many people have said something to me about that happening and remember it. And every, apparently every time the anniversary of that comes up, it gets put on YouTube or something because I get calls and emails and everything about, Oh, we just saw this. We saw that moment again. That's unbelievable. So that's how that happened. And then the, uh, the wrestling part of it, uh, they had decided they were streaming on their own platform, uh, WWE events. And what they wanted to do was a history of the WWE as part of that streaming service. And I don't know who recommended me. Somebody recommended me to the WWE to, to voice over, do the script on the historical shows that they were going to stream. And uh, they called, and I was a little reluctant. I mean, I love wrestling. I always have. Uh, people who remember Killer Kowalski, he was one of my heroes. You have to be pretty old to remember that, though. And Haystack Calhoun. But uh, anyway, they uh, called me and asked if I would do it. And I, I asked. I said, look, I don't want it to be. Uh, I don't want it to be false. I don't want it. If you're going to do a real history and it's going to be true, then I'd love to do it. Uh, I love voiceover work. And they said, no, this is the real deal. This is straight up. We're going to talk about what we are, how we do it, who the people are. And uh, I said, okay. And 
they sent scripts up and I did it at a studio in Maine uh, while we were connected to the people in uh, New York. And I, I actually really enjoyed it. I learned a lot about the wrestling business. So I've, uh, I mean, that's been something I've, I really treasure. Uh, I, I think the job they did on that was outstanding. And I, again, I, someday I'll find out who it was who recommended me, I guess, to do it. But I, I don't know. I had no connections to the wrestling world uh, at that time. But it worked out. And, uh, you know, all these different tentacles of broadcasting that I've been fortunate enough to follow, uh, really, that's what's made the career so enjoyable. But it, it's just been so much of, of so many sports. I just want to hear the call of the four, seven split. All right. He steps up to the, <laughs> how would he call that? Well, he made a hell of a spare there. He made a hell of a spare. We all love to bowl. We all go bowling at Christmas with the family, but, but to call it and not smile at your partner, it would, it would crack me up. I, I'd want to watch you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was something. Hey, how about this? How about this? I told you I did the uh, bowling at Maine when the public television station carried it. My analyst was the creator of the pin setter. Really? Really. He was wow. an elderly gentleman at the time we did it. I, I remember right. He's from Boston. was from Massachusetts. And he was the one who had, who created had the patent on the automatic pin setter in bowling. I was like, I think about that now. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, any <laughs> curling, Gary? No curling? No curling. No. No. no oh, come on. Curling. Well, give All me right. a chance. I got a ways to go yet. All the things you've done everywhere. Oh, man. You've just, we, we could talk for forever about all the gigs you've done. But um, good. all the years, all the guys that you've worked with, all your part, give me some of your, your, your favorite, uh, partners that you've worked with through the years oh my god well number one there are no unfavorites and i mean that uh i've been very lucky the people i've worked with have just been the best i mean bob murphy uh, god loving became a dear friend i did the eulogy at his funeral he's the one i started radio with with the mets in new york um ralph kiner i did tv with the mets with him my great friend Tom Seaver, uh, whom I did games with, with the Mets. Tim McCarver, uh, who I worked with also in the Mets. I mean, you're talking about some not only magnificent announcers, but some great people. Bill Clement, whom I did the hockey with, with ESPN. Peter McNabb, who I did it with, with the uh, Devils. Uh, trouble in naming names is I know I'm going to leave somebody out, and I really don't want to. Um, I have enjoyed my relationship with the people I've worked with immensely. Jim Palmer with the, uh, with the Orioles, the late Mike Flanagan who worked with the Orioles. Um, uh, they were, they were people who became, they became friends. I mean, it wasn't just, we went to work and then went away and forgot about one another. It, it didn't work out that way because that's the kind of people that they were. And early on, I mean, the, the help that they gave me, early on in my career and all of the different sports was, was just enormous. I mean, you don't get it done coming in out of nowhere into New York to broadcast the Mets uh, with everybody going, who the hell is this? 
if you don't have the support of somebody like Bob Murphy, whom everybody knew and trusted and loved. So I, that's the way it's been for me with the people I've worked with. I can't imagine uh, doing this business of play-by-play and having to work with people you don't like. It happens. I mean, I, it happens, but boy, I wouldn't want to be any part of that. Well, Gary Thorne, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. It's been an honor uh, to, to talk about all the places you've been and, and what an awesome career. And uh, I just want to tell you, I, I appreciate you coming on the show. What we do here on the Boone podcast at the very end is uh, we bring Dan Levy back, the voice of the Boone podcast, to ask a question from the fans. Dan? Hey, guys. Hi, Gary. Hello, Dan. Hello, Gary. All right. This question comes from Zach in Baltimore, and he wants to know this. Gary, what are you most proud of in your career? Oh, my God. (laughs) Most proud of in my career. Surviving. There you go. I understand. understand. I'd stick with that one. (laughs) Yeah, it's not easy in this business. Uh, surviving. So, uh, yeah, I think that really would be it. It's, it's, it's not, a, it, it's more being humbled by what I've been able to do than it is about being honestly and being proud of it. I am proud of the work I've done and and the games I've done and some of the calls I've been able to make, but, uh, I think it's a very humbling business and to be able to survive in it, um, that takes some, uh, chutzpah and a lot of work. And I'm proud of the fact that I I did that. I did the work. I did the research in order to keep myself abreast of the games I was doing and and keep myself in the business. Bonus points for using the Yiddish word chutzpah. Nice job on that one. Thank you so much. I like that. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We appreciate you. My pleasure. It was a delight. Thank you, Brett. Thanks, Gary. Mailbag. You know that sound. That means it is time for the Brett Boone Mailbag. Shall we dig in? Let's dig in. All right. That's the sound, Dan. That's the sound. That's the sound. That's an extra sound. Brett, this one comes from Marv in San Antonio, and he wants to know, you've talked about being a roving instructor. What exactly does that mean? Roving instructor. Okay, it's... uh well, probably referring to, to when I worked with the Oakland A's, uh, I think back in 2015. Basically, I I, uh, I was kind of a guy that wore a bunch of different hats. So I'm in the organization. I don't have any – I'm not affiliated with a team, a minor league team. I'm not the hitting instructor. I'm not the pitching instructor. I'm not the infield instructor. I'm kind of everything. So what I would do is you know, I'd work about 12 days a week. And I'd go to our affiliate that that most needed me at the time. It seems like during those years, uh, it was our A-ball team that had a bunch of real real prospects that a lot of them are in the big leagues now. But I'd go, for example, I'd go to San Bernardino for for four days and I'd hang out with our A-ball team. And basically, I'd sit in the dugout with them during the game, talk the game. Uh, I really enjoyed that time. It was, hey, Brett. Uh, you know, what would you do in this situation? What What are you thinking? What's that pitcher thinking? So we just talk the game with these young players trying to develop them. At the same time, I'd be out there with them for batting practice. If we had some defensive work to do, I'd, I'd give them my best instruction uh, around, hanging around the, the batter's cage, talk hitting. So I was kind of a guy that, you know, just kind of does it all. And, and 
really didn't have a particular role. I was kind of there. Two weeks later, I might be in double A doing the same thing. Uh, you know, I might pop down to instructional ball for a week or two to work with the young players there. So, uh, you know, really basically hanging on the minor league side of the organization, but really, really a cool, you know, you get these kids when they're young and, and they're learning. You know, when you get to the big leagues, you're expected to to be seasoned at that point, and you don't need any tutelage anymore. That's why you're a big leaguer. The minor leagues were forming them, and I'm just passing on as much knowledge and experience uh, that I've gone through in my career and my life to maybe if I can help a kid here and there. Uh, it was kind of fulfilling, but uh, I enjoyed my time doing it. All right, back to the mailbag we go. And this last question comes from Eric in Buffalo, and he wants to know this one, Brett. You played baseball in Seattle. At the same time, there was a basketball team there. Did you ever get to hang out with uh, Gary Payton and uh, Sean Kemp? Payton, a little bit. Not Kemp. Ray Allen. Ray Allen was my boy. I'd I'd hang with up in Seattle. We'd play golf all the time. But no, uh, Payton, a little bit. I think I, I think I got, we exchanged. I gave him a bat. He gave me a basketball, but Sonics games, those were fun. You know, I can't believe the city of Seattle ever let them leave that city. I remember, you know, in the off season, I, I'd go to some Sonics games and, and that city misses it. And who knows, maybe one day they'll be back. That is fantastic. You knew Jesus Shuttlesworth. That's even better to me. <laughs> All right, well, that's going to do it for this year, Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I am the technical director, producer of the Boone Podcast. Executive producer of the Boone Podcast is handled by Rich Herrera. Digital content gets worked on by Liz Landry. Please share the Boone Podcast with neighbors, friends, and all those who love baseball. Make sure you subscribe to the Boone Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, please give us a five-star rating and share your feelings about the Boone Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. For all of us here on the Boone Podcast, I'm Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. We'll do it again soon. See ya.